Hello and welcome to the Global Inquirer. We are an undergraduate research podcast based in the University of Virginia, and each week we bring you stories from across the world to explain how global trends are impacting real lives. I'm your host, Emma Ross. Today, we bring you a financial story about what Eurodollars are and what implications they have. We're sitting down with John Sun, a first-year intended major in pre-commerce and statistics. And we are also recording remotely, as our audience may remember from the previous two episodes. Um, We are currently not at the University of Virginia due to the COVID-19 outbreak, and I am recording from my basement. How are you holding up throughout all of this, John? Hello, Emma. No, thank you. I'm I'm doing well myself. It's been uh, definitely a disruption to all of our lives, I think. But, you know, we... As life goes, we have to roll along with the punches and do whatever we need to do to tide this over. Yeah, you put it very well. And doing whatever we need to do means for us continuing with the podcast. So John, you pitched to me a financial story. And quite honestly, I was scared because, I mean, me, like many Americans, we hear, you know, finance and statistics and commerce and money, and we just kind of start to snooze. So why did the story of the euro dollar actually interest you and what made you want to do an entire episode on it? Uh, It was just one sentence that my professor said to me and when he described it as these these very strange almost wads of money that were floating around outside of the United States and they were completely outside of the regulation of the Federal Reserve and um, I think the whole class just you know it it snoozed on by their their long classes long j-term classes but when I heard that, like I suddenly jolted awake and, and, and I just thought, wait a minute, that, that is, that's a little interesting. And I, and I listened a little bit more and the professor said something like somewhere close to half of all U.S. dollars in circulation exists in this shadowy form outside of the United States. And I, since that day, I, I have to say that just sort of stayed in the back of my mind. And when... We were thinking of um, potential stories out there that pertain to international relations. This just immediately jumped to my mind. I just thought right back to that moment. So you're telling me that vast amounts of dollars are held outside of the country, but I'm interested in learning more about why we're using this term euro dollar and what does that mean? That's right. And there's there's a lot of um, potential confusion when it comes to this specific term. And it is because that the whole um, international scene of the euro dollar market is so so beyond the purview of what normally is given attention to in finance that it's it's a it's really a term that eludes easy definition but to give a concrete example any american can deposit us dollars into a foreign bank account say you for example emma might go to a, a london bank and open a us de- dollar denominated account and put down one $1,000 and suddenly that uh, deposit just left the United States and is considered a euro dollar. Because they're held outside the United States, euro dollars are not, not subject by the Federal Reserve Board. And that includes the reserve requirements that the Federal Reserve uh, levies on banks that fall under its purview. So when did it begin to be popular to have Americans or other people deposit dollars in foreign bank accounts, and where did this idea come from? Well, the history of euro dollars is fascinating in and of itself because no one is actually sure how this market came to be. 
And to understand really how such a large looming financial mystery exists today, we have to go back and really examine the context of global currencies. So in this context, before, say, the 1800s and the Industrial Revolution, there was no truly global currency in the world. There was international trade, yes, but no one country was large or economically dominant enough to impose a globally convenient currency. That all changed, though, when the British Empire came into existence and established the widest trading empire that humanity has seen, and the pound sterling became the international currency of choice for merchants engaged in international commerce. And then the, the, the next big shift happened after World War II, and any students of economics will instantly recognize this, and students of history as well, the Marshall Plan, very momentous piece of U.S. foreign policy, uh, aimed to rebuild war-torn Europe, injects an immense amount of U.S. dollars. And people consider it back then the U.S. dollar uh, in Europe at the time as the euro before the euro, because um, every single country who were affected by World War II on the continent essentially had their financial systems just eviscerated by the conflict. So the U.S. dollar was in place as the transaction currency for a while. So that puts us uh, where the euro dollar, um, where the euro dollar myth begins. And again, like I said, it's, it's interesting because there's a lot of speculation as to how um, US dollars started being traded uh, and lent out back and forth between European banks. But uh, there's, there's a lot of myths and stories about <clears throat> how this might have started. And uh, one particularly interesting one that I think um, is of note, uh, it's unconfirmed, but certainly very cool, uh, is the following. So with the Marshall Plan, um, in the backdrop, uh, we are now in uh, the late 1950s, and the Soviet Union is about to invade Hungary in 1956. There are fears within uh, Soviet leadership that its foreign deposits of uh, U.S. dollars, its foreign reserves in North America, will be frozen in retaliation. So the Soviet uh, economics ministers, uh, I, I would assume, came up with this plan. They will move all of their U.S.-based holdings into a Soviet-owned British-chartered uh, bank in Britain, uh, the Moscow Nardoni Bank. Uh, that was step one. Step two was have Moscow Nardoni Bank redeposit the U.S. dollars back into the United States. And now money can't be confiscated by the U.S. government since it is held by a private commercial entity chartered uh, in the U.K., yeah, thank you for that explanation that really shed a lot of light on the differences and why today is a completely different global era than back then. I'm just going to ask you one more point about, you know, the interesting specific Soviet situation that I found really interesting is, you know, a Russian and Eastern European major. Um, I just find it so fascinating that, you know, a lot of the origin story could possibly tra be traced back to Soviets, quote unquote, trying to cheat the system and um, hide their money so that they can't be punished for doing something as, you know, it, that had as, as many international consequences as invading Hungary. Um, but I'm wondering if you might be able to make a connection between Soviets trying to hide money so that it can't be uh, subject to international pressures to maybe modern day 
um, individuals who hide their money so that it can't be subject to consequences. I think the the most interesting point in that comparison is that um, the Soviet origin story, if it were true, um, actually spawned a very large um, financial market. Uh, it, it created the whole euro euro dollar market, and it's it's interesting to note how maybe something that originated in conniving move uh, almost legitimized itself over the years and became a semi-legitimate channel for international bankers to um, move money um, internationally denominated by the U.S. dollar without having to be exposed to U.S. regulations. Um, When we compare that to, say, like something like the Panama Papers, where we have individuals trying to move their money to uh, international overseas shelters, I would say... um, Certainly, we haven't seen that level of legitimization of that process yet. But uh, if we were to make that comparison, I would say um, how this method was legitimized is uh, definitely interesting to think about. And I I would also point out that um, out of the many possible origin stories for the euro dollar, another interesting one that's similar to the Soviet case is uh, the speculation around maybe it was uh, communist China um, also around the same time. Uh, who was moving U.S. dollars around to um, be sheltered from confiscation due to their involvement in the Korean War. So it's a very, um, it's a very similar story and it happened at around the same time. And it's, it's, um, it plays into how none of this is confirmed. And it's, uh, again, it, it's a very similar story. And maybe it speaks to the point that, you know, the world is complicated and there, there might not be a single origin story, but, you know, international circumstances line up to the, in such a way that countries, it would be in a country's interest to act in this manner anyway. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. And I want to continue our story a little bit um, since, since we were able to look back and kind of examine the piece of history that you just presented. I want to continue your story and move on to the birth of the euro dollar market. So after the Soviet Union or possibly communist China originated this tendency, how did um, the international economic system continue this trend? Mm-hmm. And this is, a, I should say, uh, this is a distinction that will be a common theme during our conversation today. And that is the the two different categories that we're talking about when we're talking about euro dollars. We have euro dollars referring to the actual currency themselves as the actual, I guess we can imagine, um, stacks of bills that exist in um, in vaults somewhere in an international bank. Uh, like in real life, it would be a, a number on a foreign account somewhere. But we can think of it like that. We can think of the one type of euro dollar as the currency that is, is cash that exists outside of the United States. And we can also, th- when we talk about euro dollars, we are also talking about the euro dollar market and the euro dollar system. And this is something that is, um, unfortunately, it's, unfor- it's not very convenient that it's under the same name, but it's uh, a different, we're talking about a different entity. We're talking about the trade and circulation of those dollars. And this is their inception. So around the early 1960s, European and American banks discovered that they could get a much better interest rate for loans issued in U.S. dollars outside of the U.S. 
And this was because that those loans are not insured by the FDIC and they were completely unregulated. Um, to maybe provide a little bit more context, uh, major banks in the U.S. are protected to an extent because they have an account open with the Federal Reserve. So if something were to happen, was there to be a, a run on the bank, then the Federal Reserve can um, provide that emergency um, liquidity. Now, loans made in outside of the regulatory um, jurisdiction of uh, the FDIC and the, Fed and the Federal Reserve do not have this insurance. Now, that means they are inherently riskier, um, leading to a better interest rate uh, for those banks. And uh, these banks simulta simultaneously discovered that there was a very large demand for loans um, issued in uh, USD and Euro, partially because of the very heavy American um, business influence um, at that time due to the Marshall Plan. And, uh, and thus, European banks began issuing euro dollar loans and American banks started to move their dollars to their overseas branches en masse. Um, it was also another move for those American banks to skirt domestic U.S. banking interest caps. Um, that was just another uh, implication. And what happened after that was uh, you now had U.S. dollars that were circulating outside of the United States, outside of the jurisdiction of the FDIC and of the Federal Reserve. And it's almost as if a second, second economy was formed, a second monetary system was formed. And of course, because these are transactions happening between banks, between countries, um, there was no regulatory um, commission. There was no regulatory authority over how this second um, economic market will be run. There were no rules. Uh, the people who set the rules were the international bankers uh, participating in, in the system. Yeah, it seems like an individual can easily take advantage of this type of system for their own favor, whether it's, you know, a country or a banker or a company or an individual. It seems like using this kind of currency would be in an individual's favor. It certainly is in the favor of international banks. If we were to, I guess, uh, comb the story for a possible point of weakness in terms of someone who can exploit the system, we will see that um, international banks can certainly use this euro dollar market to create transactions that are in US dollars, but are not regulated by uh, the Central Bank of America. And that is a core, uh, core piece of the euro dollar saga. What does it mean for the U.S. to have all of this unregulated currency in circulation? So in the 1960s and 70s, the euro-dollar market, when it was still very young, was mainly small sums moved across borders and actual um, cash being transferred among individuals. But the modern euro-dollar market is actually nothing like that. And this being 2008, it is a story about the modern monetary crisis and how the system really shifted since its uh, 1960s inception is that people and individuals and, and corporate clients of these international banks stopped being the big players in the euro dollar market. And the, the important people participating in the market suddenly became these um, international banks who are dealing with each other. Now we're talking about um, 
the the euro dollar market is now uh, mostly a market for interbank transactions. So the modern euro dollar system created a completely unregulated system, ecosystem of U.S. dollars, uh, a monetary system controlled entirely by international bankers and accountable to, to no one. Since you keep repeating so many times that the U.S. is not regulating these private interactions, what's stopping them from introducing regulation? It would be a breach of sovereignty in, in one sense if the U.S. decided that they were going to um, exact laws that um, regulate how regulate the financial behavior of what banks can and cannot do for another country. So that is one massive difficulty. Sovereignty does not it does not follow the U.S. dollar. It ends at the U.S. border. That's probably the biggest obstacle to regulating regulating these transactions. And another factor is that there really is no reasonable way to achieve a uh, a comfortable level of regulation, um, at least for what I guess the average person would be comfortable with knowing about this story. Because uh, <clears throat> as of right now, the U.S. dollar is the international um, settlement currency. If like uh, if a Turkish businessman wants to settle an account with say a French person, then they will likely instead of like switching their own domestic currencies, they're much more likely to switch their currencies. Uh, into U.S. dollars and then settling the account that way because um, people value the U.S. dollar for its stability and its um, worldwide acceptance. And that is because the use of U.S. dollars in this way uh, in trade and commerce is so prolific, there is really no way to extend authority to cover every single facet of um, how the U.S. dollar can be used. So it's a it's a problem of practicality and a problem of principles. So we've been talking about a very variable economic system on the world stage, and there's risk that comes along with that. I was hoping you could speak a little bit to the potential national security threat that could happen. U.S. uniquely is the only country in the world to face a massive swath of their domestic currency circul circulating internationally. And it's an interesting consideration to think about how... Um, all these dollars can suddenly come in at once and cause mass inflation. And this is, again, in the realm of theory, but um, it is definitely a possible eventuality. I mean, when we talk about uh, flight capital, for instance, um, people, wealthy individuals who are in uh, less stable parts of the world, um, logically, it, it's in their best interest to exchange their local currency for U.S. dollars than deposit that that sum of U.S. dollars in some um, offshore offshore uh, account. And over time, uh, like like we discussed, the mass of U.S. dollars, both in individual possession and in corporate possession have grown to a colossal size. So this poses an interesting national security threat. Um, it is, it's interesting to fantasize and think about um, the potential exposure here um, to the U.S. economy from a national security perspective. It's possible, not saying how likely it is, but for a foreign government maybe to um, quietly accumulate a large sum of U.S. dollars and then um, release it, release it into the U.S. economy all at once. And uh, that would cause a great deal of um, economic disruption 
um, and will likely be will likely subvert the U.S. currency market for years to come. And that's our episode for this week. As always, thank you for listening to The Global Inquirer, and thank you to John's son for bringing us this week's story. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Consider leaving a comment and liking us on Facebook. And be sure to join us next week when we sit down with Cameron Bertrand to discuss climate change in Russia.